0: and welcome to Overdrive, a program that luxuriates in the realm of cars and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this week's program we will be driving a tank. Not a military vehicle, but the Great Wall Motors Tank 300, a large SUV, with off-road credentials, a long list of features, and a great price. And we revisit the Roselle Interchange controversy, and look at planning and how new projects can impact car ownership, including how do we update your sat nav that is built into your car. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au, podcast on iTunes or Spotify or the socials, Facebook, Instagram or YouTube, look for Cars, Transport, Culture. This program was originally broadcast on the 9th of December, 2023. this week we've been driving a tank but i don't mean a military vehicle and i certainly don't mean one that was with a camouflage paint job we've been driving the great war motors more commonly known as gwm now tank 300 a large suv and fred brain and i have dabbled with it in a number of circumstances. And Fred joins us on the line now. Fred, this is a car that's really looking to be a bit Jeep-like, that sort of traditional rough-and-tough-looking SUV. Well, not SUV, more four-wheel drive.
1: Uh, certainly appears that way, yes. It, uh, it's hard to sort of categorise it into a particular segment of the market in some ways.
0: Apart from the colour, which ours was bright orange. If you wanted a Jeep with a bright colour, it would be red, but this is more a sedan type colour, I would have thought. Yeah, that's a point. It actually wasn't too bad a colour, I must say. Look, great around the urban area, yeah. but we're not talking about a car that's just soft and fluffy. It has quite a number of the key credentials to be a good off road vehicle.
1: Absolutely, yeah. It had high ground clearance, uh, high and low four wheel drive, diff locks. Mm. So, yeah, certainly had the serious four wheel drive equipment.
0: And we took it over some pretty large pothole dirt roads and it coped quite well. It wasn't a challenge to its grip. It was more a challenge to the fact that it went thump and didn't fall apart. (laughs) I didn't mean too (laughs) much of a thump. I don't want to stress that. Now, the engine, two litre petrol turbocharged, 162 kilowatts, 380 newton metres. Was it enough?
1: For normal on-road use, yes. For our driving of it, how well that would go if If, say, you were towing, for example, or if you were doing serious off-roading, I'm not too sure because turbo diesels have become the norm norm for that type of situation.
0: Nonetheless, it had an eight-speed gearbox, which their PR raves about, and I think with some justification, it was a smooth operator.
1: It certainly drove quite smoothly on the road. You wouldn't pick it as being an eight-speed auto even.
0: Or even an off-roading four-wheel drive. It was... Well, it was almost soft. You found the steering very light.
1: Yeah, the steering is a bit lighter than what I uh, I would prefer, but um, it certainly tracked well. Apart from the apart from the lane keeping, which I would I would desire turning off.
0: We will get to their use of technology, which is there. It's yet to be perfected. I hopped in the car and drove it, and thought this is remarkably quiet and comfortable. And indeed, I then got out of it into another sedan and thought oh, oh i've suddenly noticed the noise a bit more so this is not a jeep with chunky tires that rattles and roars down the highway yeah it's interesting you should say
1: that that the comparison with a jeep this one is way way smoother and quieter
0: i was at the traffic lights and a jeep pulled up beside me and zoomed off making a noise that was more penetrating into me than my own car was <laughs> Interesting. It was it wasn't huge in one sense, yet it was perceivable, and certainly had that sort of gravelly growl to it and tire noise that I often find tiring to say the least. Now let's have a look at the dimensions. You've had a look at that rather closely, and we'll compare it to something like what the Pajero Sport and the Prado. The one we were looking
1: at was just a Pajero, right? Which isn't right. the Pajero Sport. Pajero Sports right. a uh, a lower roofline vehicle based on their the Ute versions or the, the commercial vehicle versions.
0: Do they still make a Pajero? No, the Pajero
1: itself is out of been out of production for a couple of years now. But
0: you have one, so your passion for that. Yes. So it's an interesting comparison of where things move in length. What's the difference between a GWM tank? And the Pajero, which is the longer?
1: Well, the Pajero is longer. It's about, what, 100, 140 mil longer.
0: That's nearly six inches. That's quite a lot. Yes, yeah. And it sort
1: of becomes apparent when you open the rear tailgate Yeah, because yeah. the tank has a much shorter rear section behind behind the rear wheels. So uh, it's got way less rear overhang. I suppose a more relevant comparison with the current model Prado, uh, which is longer again some of which would be at the rear and some at the front.
0: That's about 10 inches longer, 100 and 240. Yes. That's quite a lot, although you pointed out that those both those vehicles had a third seat option. That's where extra length may come to the best advantage.
1: Yes, uh, apart from extra load space in normal usage, but certainly, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, you can fit a third row seat
0: in. Width, surprisingly, the tank is a little wider. Yeah, there was kind
1: of say, a, a couple of inches extra width in it. Uh, but it does have flared, tack-on flared guards.
0: That's the Jeep look, isn't it? Yeah. Protruding out from the side of the car.
1: Which gives a more rugged off-road look. There's no doubt about that.
0: So the actual body width available to passengers and driver is perhaps certainly no no more, but possibly a little less than the other vehicles?
1: Without getting into actually directly comparing the dimensions. It had a kind of slightly narrower feel to it, in my opinion. Hmm. But it would be interesting to see the uh, actual measurements too.
0: Talking about looks, the front headlights are actually in a round satia thing and they have a strip across the middle. I have a very vague memory of Star Trek. <laughs> I've looked this up and it may sound as though I've watched this far more than I have because I know very little about it, but in the third series, was it Star Trek Adventure or something like that, Geordie was the person that had those glasses which had a sort of a strip across the front of them, didn't they?
1: <laughs> yes, I had to Google it as well. I, I wasn't a Star Trek watcher either. <laughs> but I did remember the glasses, I must say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it was LeVar Burton who played the part, oh, uh, Geordie LaForge, who was, I believe, the title of commander, lieutenant commander, or something or other. Apparently, that's important, but I know very little. I, I haven't been able to go through and find out why those glasses were so important, and I don't think I will be. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave that to the Star Trek people, I'd say. The new Prado's coming out. The old Prado was really one that looked a bit like a, an SUV, wasn't it? It didn't try to look rugged. Rather- yes. It had good off-road potential.
1: Yeah, but they, they kind of made it a rounded style. Mm. Yeah, you're right, which is more a sort of SUV type rather than a serious off roader even though they are rated very highly as off-road vehicles.
0: And the new one?
1: Well, the new one, pictures of it thus far, it's, it's very squared off.
0: But a bit of techo there on the front, isn't it? The lights and. Oh, ah, yes. It's got a little bit of bling as though it's a bit of a modern starship yes. more than it is just a, a few uh, standard lights and so on.
1: For sure. Yeah, they've certainly uh, done some unusual things on the front despite the uh, squarish looks.
0: You mentioned the petrol engine. That's been a little unusual in all wheel drives. Have there been other serious off roaders with all wheel drive capability? The tank comes with it as standard. Some of these others have a two wheel drive option. There's been others with a petrol engine. One that comes to mind most is the uh,
1: Toyota FJ Cruiser, Ah. uh, which we we don't get anymore. I I can't remember how many years ago that that ceased being supplied in Australia. But. It only came with the V6 petrol engine.
0: A big V6. Yeah,
1: but it was based on the Prado chassis at that time, but with a distinctly different body and a shorter front and rear overhang.
0: I went on the launch and it was very capable off-road, including your point about overhangs, very good approach and depart angles. Yes, yes. It's quirky though, was not it? Because it had... Suicide doors. The second door was a small door, yes. which made getting into the back a bit easier, but not, not as good as a separate or vehicle.
1: They were certainly an unusually styled or a retro style vehicle that had young, and some unusual features, for sure.
0: Maybe a little bit too different, but big four litre uh, V6 petrol. 200 kilowatts, I think. This one, 162, as I mentioned, and 380 newton metres. Tell us the price, son. (laughs) It's $47,000 drive away for the base model. That's very competitive, given that it's a four-wheel drive, and given that it comes with quite a few features, a sunroof, roof rails, seven airbags. It's all the lane departure, warning lane, keep assist, rear cross traffic alert, and it's got all-terrain selection. It's even got what they call a transparent chassis. So if you're parking it, it gives you a view of what you're really going over rather than necessarily just having a car there. If you go to the Ultra takes you up to about $51,000. That's drive away. That's still not bad. And, and that comes with extra things, which is the, the model we tested, including a wireless charger, a 240-volt power outlet, colour ambient lighting. You'd, you'd want that in the off-road.
1: Well, you need it. Not just want it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Essential operating equipment. Power adjustable driver's seat with lumbar adjustments and massage. There's so many things in it, that didn't to it. I will talk about the lane keep assist. You found it a bit too aggressive?
1: Yeah, it's fairly really disconcerting. I think I would turn that off fairly quickly, actually.
0: The rumor that's going around is that the first model they brought in of this tank was in fact a hybrid, and the interface, the human-machine interface was even worse, mm. where it would pull and yank, and you almost had to fight it to keep it in line. I haven't driven it, so I, I won't do anything more than report a comment or so that I've heard. But it is a classic of these more recent manufacturers that they're putting a whole pile of the new technology in but the fact that it might do something on the drawing board or in the computer model doesn't necessarily translate into a smooth operator, as I said. The thing that there's one we had that still annoyed me was that, particularly when you started out, it keep pulling up the message and beeping at you, ELK. Now, that meant emergency lane keep. But I hadn't wandered in the lane much at all. Now, there has been an update for this model, but I was of the opinion or the feel that this one hadn't been updated, but someone suggested it might have been. Well, if it has been, then good grief, it would have been poor beforehand. (laughs) So uh, you can turn it off, but you've got to turn it off every time you start it. Oh, no. Which defeats the safety factor of it. So in summary, Fred, I would say that um, it's really incredible value for money. It's got good off-road potential. It looks a bit of the part, but it's got still a few quirky uh, things that can be disconcerting, if not annoying, in terms of the electronic assistance packages that it gives to the driver. Easy to drive, but you would say a bit light.
1: Yeah, a bit light in the steering, and I I, I also wonder if uh, if you were towing up to the two and a half ton towing capacity, how your performance would go. Yeah. With yeah. the uh, the two liter turbo petrol engine. Yeah. It might be somewhat disappointing in that circumstance, and also off off roading whether it uh, whether it has sufficient torque to make it quite a reasonable off roader as well.
0: All right, mate. Lovely to talk to you. Thanks for your time. And uh, I appreciate it. We took it out and showed it at the St. Ives Motor Show and got some interesting comments. And I think most of them were a little bit offended that some of the opposition, you know, the Jeep is over $80,000, the Prado's 90 or more, to get them on the roads was really pushing up a lot when this had good value for money. Thanks again for your time, Fred. Thanks for the drive of it, Dave. And that's Fred Brain, our mechanical engineer, giving his opinion on the GWM Tank 300 large SUV.
2: Overdrive. If you
1: have a question, suggestion or comment, send an email to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au.
3: Released the 2 R at a stunning price of just under $130,000 plus the usual costs. The 2 R comes in one highly specified plug in hybrid electric version. It combines a V6 turbocharged 3 litre petrol engine with a 100 kilowatt electric motor for a maximum system power of 340 kilowatts plus maximum torque of 700 Nm. The R version comes with an 8 speed automatic transmission and 4 motion drivetrain. This is good for 0 to 100 an hour time of 5.1 seconds. The maximum electric only range is about 50km, so it's ideal for daily city driving. And once the EV range is exhausted, the Tourag R operates as a normal e-hybrid with excellent economy. As you would expect, the Tourag R comes with almost everything Volkswagen can put in there, including night vision, wireless smartphone connectivity and charging, and matrix headlights. Considering it shares many components with a Porsche Cayenne, One must question why buy a Porsche when you can get similar for half the price. I'm Rob Fraser. This is Overdrive across Australia.
0: The hottest transport issue in Sydney at the moment is the recently opened new tunnel under the Roselle Balmain commercial area that aims to take through traffic off Victoria Road. There are two issues here. Where does the new section of road fit into the overall system and what are some of the more specific traffic engineering problems? Chris Stapleton has been on the program recently at the start of this issue. Does he think that the road is a mistake?
2: Uh, I wouldn't say that. I think uh, it's part of our overall need for a road network. It's not a, a complete mistake. It's more the the way it's been produced almost as usual. We seem to be
0: getting this irregular series of errors. It is good to have a bypass of a local community area, yet it is not just a case of considering arterial traffic. I think traffic for New South Wales makes three fundamental errors. It focuses all its hullabaloo on through traffic. It fails to understand the magnitude and nature of local traffic and it doesn't understand human behaviour. The result is a very mechanistic way in which it reviews things. But the current specific problems have brought out many of the oft-repeated generalisations about the good and bad aspects of road building. One oft-repeated statement is that it generates more cars, induced demand, and that can be a problem. But this is nearly always used as though it's just increasing Private car use. Induced demand is a reality, but it is multifaceted. Traffic modelling, if you just leave it
2: to do what it used to do and does, uh, it works on finding how traffic adjusts for quicker journeys. And this is usually called induced traffic. And uh, there's sort of three phases that this happens in. Uh, The phase one is on virtually day one. Uh, people start realising it's quicker to go from A to B using the new facility. And we're still, some of them found it's quicker to go from A to B by abandoning their public transport and getting onto the road. So that's the starting point of that. Senior transport planner in um, the UTS, Michelle uh, Zelbots, identified about a 15% change of traffic within a few weeks when the M4 was extended uh, to prospect back in the 90s. Uh, but the second demand is more complicated because suddenly we all start wanting to um, go to places we couldn't quite reach. You can suddenly reach grandma and during the peak hour, which is more convenient than going later, as it were. Or as I said, when they built the Eastern distributor, suddenly the people in the East could uh, have a coffee like Leichhardt. They didn't go much, by the way, because that road never filled up. But But that's the sort of... The secondary thing that that is uh, more um, David Henscher, Professor David Henscher at the Sydney Uni, has been looking more at that over the years. And thirdly, of course, then land use changes, which is again what we intend to happen with transport sometimes. For example, when the M7 was built, the, the, the orbital road, a lot of logistic companies moved out there. But similarly, when we're built now building railways, we're saying. We can put in more people along these railways so that they can
0: work. So we've got some understanding of land use and integrated transport. By constricting road capacity under the assumption that people will adjust and catch public transport is committing many local communities to suffer from trucks, vans, emergency vehicles, trips for work that are not easily or quickly served by public transport. These critical activities, which are part of any ongoing community, are by this approach left to go past schools, hospitals, shopping precincts and even residential dwellings in a slow stop-start manner, making air and noise pollution. Integrated transport planning means that we have to cater for arterial trips, but of course also integrate good solutions for the wide range of activities and trips that are part of a vibrant community. In regard to Roselle and many other situations, Chris sees a lack of diversity in the planning process.
2: But in this case, and in many cases with the roads, uh, it gets lost because it gets designed by uh, the tollway operators.
0: To their credit, Transurban, the big tollway builder, has established one of the most well-resourced units for computer modelling of the transport network. It's very good for operational issues along the route, such as if there is a road works in one lane, does that mean all other lanes have to reduce to 40 kilometres an hour? But also, it can be applied for much broader strategic considerations. And in our free market environment, building projects that have been approved by the government, it is totally reasonable that they conduct their business in order to maximise shareholder value. But we need a balance of considerations because doing something for a profit or doing something for the community can be mutually exclusive.
2: There's a double whammy going on here. A toll operator will possibly even unintentionally design it so that traffic in and out of the toll road works better than any any other way. Why wouldn't you? But the, the thing that really I, I find hard now is that we don't have the over overview from the, the Department of Transport or DMR or whatever it's has been called over in the in the good old days engineers worked together to to get it right or better and it was interesting because in in my whole career it's been a, a chance of people talking sometimes completely unofficially to each other to to get the right answer it wasn't perfect but it was it was pretty
0: good it could be argued that induced demand is really just people getting a benefit from the new infrastructure whether it be changing their route to use the new infrastructure or making more local trips because some through traffic has been removed.
2: Yes, and and, and more, more so, interestingly enough, is if suddenly people in Balmain, because of these new roads, can drive around, they will also start driving more. They will start making what used to be a, a three-kilometre journey to, I don't know, a bookshop that they like. They can now go down to, to down to Newtown and, and places uh, using the airport link. So they themselves change. So it, again, it's uh, we we keep on saying, and you said it just then, driving from the west to the city. There's absolutely bugger all people doing that, but along the way, there are people who are joining and leaving, and joining and leaving, and we just don't measure this, and we we keep on. Uh, that's why I, I'm in. Well, I've been looking at that the intersection and the way they have designed it. I think we've got to look at how that design will work for the next at least ten to fifteen years before the West Harbour Link is drawn, because th- there's no way you should have built those roads if you're not going to take more capacity out the northern side of it.
0: Chris mentioned the West Harbour link which is a new tunnel under the harbour linking Roselle west of the CBD with Camaray on the northern side of the harbour. But the issue does remain if we do not want to increase local traffic volumes then we have to consider ways to encourage more local activities and more active transport. The construction of a new motorway link is an opportunity to remove through traffic when the M4 motorway and then the West Connect tunnels were built to basically run parallel to Parramatta Road, grand plans were discussed to make Parramatta Road less of a through route and more accommodating to buses, pedestrians, cyclists, and less accommodating to through traffic. But all the pre-build talk has led to practically nothing in the post-build era. So now that the Roselle Tunnel has been opened, what's it like? doing local trips on foot through the area. Yesterday, I actually went to walk around the area. Don't do that. It's
2: it's a hazard. Uh, I also went by public transport to have a look around, which which, which was possible, but again, it's just unbelievably bad to walk around. Uh, uh, if the signage is bad underground, you want to see what it's like above ground.
0: The issues at Roselle have raised a number of ongoing developments that are likely to have huge unwanted consequences. For a while, there was a concern whether the Google and other mapping companies had updated at the time of the opening. It is certainly updated now, and I'm not condemning them. But what about those mapping systems that are installed and fixed in a car and are not immediately updated? I spoke to Kia, and they have an internet link that helps you update your system, but this requires a reasonable amount of computer literacy. Some cars have over-the-air update capabilities. This is an issue that we will be looking at more closely. But if you have a system that can guide you through the streets, what are the parameters that they are using to choose your route? At the moment, it is time and also can be adjusted to avoid things like toll roads. But is this a community-minded approach? And finally, we have to do something about our road taxing system. With more and more electric cars, the excise revenue from fossil fuels, and with heavy tolls on roads we would prefer people to use, there is an increasing need for a road user charge by distance, time of day, and nature of the roads we use. Planners have been pleading for us to move down this path for a long time. The Roselle Tunnel and Interchange, which is causing so much angst at the moment, will, to some degree, settle down. There will be headlines about specific, even nuanced things that are happening, but a grave concern is that we may not learn broader issues to be applied anywhere in our urban area. There has been call for a Royal Commission into the Roselle Tunnel, but I believe that there is a need to look at every systemic problem that we have in our planning process which, as the Grattan Institute has pointed out, is dominated by politics, more than principle and facts. And we are talking there to Chris Stapledon, an independent traffic engineer and transport planner with extensive experience both here and overseas. We will be taking up broader transport issues, that have been exemplified by the specific issues arising from this new road tunnel in Sydney. You're listening to Overdrive.
3: Toyota has just launched the updated model of the LC70 series work utes, wagon and troop carrier. These four-wheel drives have been so popular that Toyota had to place a hold on orders because of global component supply issues. The backlog is now clearing, helped by the introduction of the 4-cylinder version. It comes with a choice of two engines that defines the transmission. The traditional 4.5 litre turbocharged V8 diesel with a 5-speed manual, or the modified 2.8 litre 4-cylinder diesel engine mated to a 6-speed automatic transmission. The benefits of the 4-cylinder engine are that it has the same power and 70Nm more torque, it's got the same torque at 1200 revs as the V8 peak torque, The automatic transmission with a torque converter makes driving easy, there's more functionality with second gear start and power haul functionality. It has better economy and lower emissions, a lighter body weight and more payload, and it's around $4,000 cheaper in every model variant. At the end of the day though, it's a no-brainer really, and many people may disagree, but the 4-cylinder is better in almost 99% of applications.
0: this has been overdrive my thanks to fred brain chris stapleton great wall motors and mark wesley for the help with this program overdrive is syndicated across australia on the community radio network for more information go to drivenmedia.com.au or links to the socials and podcasts look for cars transport culture i'm david brown thanks for listening